welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Grace Valley Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We hope each sermon equips, challenges, and inspires you in your faith journey. For more information about Grace Valley Church, please visit our website, gracevalleymemphis.org. Grace Valley Church exists to help you discover the grace of Jesus in the valleys of life. Thanks for listening. Now, here's this week's sermon. Probably, it was right at 18 years ago. Um, uh, we, we built, we were in the process of planning on building a new house and, uh, we live in that house to this day. It's kind of our long time home. Um, and at the time, uh, my, my dad was, uh, a contractor and we had the opportunity to do this project together. And we wanted to like, I wanted to, I've always wanted to have a house built by my dad. And so when we started the project, we built the house together and it involved a lot of extra things, meaning like a lot of the, uh, trim work and cabinetry and some of that stuff he and I did in his shop together. And, uh, and just to give you a little, uh, insight into the the savage way at our house when we would uh, do little projects like this, like he and I built uh, our kitchen table that we, we, we built it together in his shop. We did a lot of woodworking projects together. My dad loved woodworking and we would do projects like that. And I'm not the only one. My, my sisters have done that kind of stuff with my dad. My brother's done that kind of stuff with my dad. And we just love getting in the shop working with him. But every single time, and I mean every single time I do a project with my dad, for some reason we do something wrong. My dad was like perfect on these things, but somehow when I get in the room, <laughs> We make some sort of critical error, and, and which really involves us having to take whatever we started, take it completely apart, and then we have to correct it and reassemble the whole thing. And it was, it got to the point where, you, if you've ever worked on a project like that, it always, we, you always discover the error at like 9.30 at night. And you're really trying to finish and get this thing done because everybody's tired. We've been in the shop all day. We're ready to go home. And, you know, you got, in my case, I got kids and a wife waiting for me at home. And he's got things he's got to do. He's got to go to work the next day, whatever. And we're just, like, stressed about this thing. And inevitably, we would say, okay, we got to back out. We got to start this part over. And we would have to back out. And I remember those were the moments that my dad and I, couldn't help but just laugh at each other. And it was just funny. It's because we, like, what else are we going to do? So we would just sort of laugh about it. And looking back, it's kind of funny because I look back at those moments. Those are some of the most, like, important memories I have of my dad, who passed away almost three years ago. But those are some of those important memories I have with him because those are the moments where it felt like we weren't just doing a project. It felt like I was doing something with my dad. And the, the imperfection of the situation really led to something a little more honest, a little more true and a little more friendly and all those things. And it was just really, those are some of the richest memories I have of my dad, of us messing stuff up in his shop, which is kind of silly. It's kind of funny, but it reminds me of like this thing that at that moment in time was so critically important. I had to get the, the table done. I had to get the cabinets built. I had to get this project finished. The, the idea of finishing the project was so important to me at the time. And now, as I look back on it, what was really most important was the time I was spending with him. Have you ever like caught yourself in that situation where you realize you had your eyes on the wrong thing? Like what you thought was like really important in that moment was really not what was most important. Like this is something we do often and it's whatever it is, it's pressure, it's deadlines, it's responsibility, whatever it is that sort of gets us all wound up. We think whatever we're dealing with is like most important. 
And it blinds us to what is truly most important, to the reality of the situation. It's so easy to get caught up in it. And that's why even when we prayed around that song, Waymaker, that some of you walked in today with things that you feel like are so vital for your life to be whole, for you to find peace, or for you to find some sort of like goodness in life. And I would, I would argue with you. You're because of the stress, because of the, the, the anxiety around it, because of all the intensity around it, it is pro it probably has you blind to what is most important. And maybe God in his grace this morning will give you a chance to look at that and laugh, laugh with your heavenly father and go, yeah, we messed that one up. And this is the cool part about our heavenly father. Funny thing, my dad modeled this for me. It's okay, son. We can start over. Some of you need to hear that from your heavenly father. It's okay, son. We can start this over. We can fix this. It's going to take a little time, but we can sort this out. It's okay, daughter. I know this seems overwhelming to you, and I know it's late, and I know we'd rather be doing other things, but we can fix this. We can deal with this. And the thing I always counted on in the shop was that he knew more than me. And the thing we can count on with our heavenly fathers, he knows more than me. He knows more than you. And that brings us to part four of our series called audience of one. We started the series four weeks ago. And the whole idea, if you haven't picked up on it yet, is that we have a choice and who we live for, who we call our audience in life. And you're either going to pick someone on earth, someone in the, in the horizontal direction, or you get to choose the vertical direction. You get to choose to live for an audience of one, live for God. And this is really a struggle for us because we really want to live for ourselves or we want to live for the pleasure of other people or the approval of others. And it's really hard. So what ends up happening is we get down the road and we look back and we realize that the, a great amount of our anxiety, a great amount of our heartbreak and a great amount of our chaos comes from trying to please other people besides God. And so this morning, if you will open your Bibles to Matthew chapter six, we're going to talk about how Jesus addresses this issue. We've been in Matthew six, the entire time in the series, because this is where Jesus talks about this idea of seeking him first. And I really want to encourage you. We've been in this series. And I've been saying this every week that I would urge you to take some notes today. If you're willing to write down some things, take notes in your phone or snap pictures of the screen or whatever you got to do to keep up. I would encourage you to keep up. If you're watching online at home, pull out your crayons and your pencils and let's take notes. Okay. So, uh, the first verse I want to read is Matthew six, one, because Jesus sets the tone for everything he's about to talk about in this passage. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So Jesus is getting into this whole idea around what needs to be first. And there's a part of us that this whole idea of getting the wrong order in life infiltrates our faith. And so what can easily happen to us is we can start to try to be righteous or perform our religious living in a way that pleases other people instead of seeking God. And so Jesus is calling this out here. He says, 
Be careful not to do the, your, your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. He says, if you do, you'll have no reward. So I want to talk a little bit about this. He instructed, Jesus instructed his followers to bring humility and secrecy and to purpose in your heart, seeking first in front of what we would call our religion. And Jesus actually identifies three, what we call disciplines or spiritual disciplines to help us manage the seeking first issue. And that's one of the, the challenges for us. When we start to seek other things, you can just, you can just measure it. Anxiety goes up, heartbreak goes up, chaos goes up because we're seeking the wrong thing. And Jesus has invited us into what will bring the anxiety down, what will bring the heartbreak down, what will bring the chaos down, and that is seeking him first. And then we go, well, how do we do this, Jesus? If we're really going to get, like, yes, I want all those categories to go down. How do we do it? And he actually gave us a way. And this is like, like this is why we call, we're calling it the science of seeking first, because Jesus actually gives us like an equation. He actually tells us what to do. And we've been talking about them in this series. Three disciplines, fasting, prayer, and giving. I know it sounds really odd, but this is how we solve this problem that we all have in life of seeking the wrong thing first. How do we seek God first? Well, we are given a pathway through fasting and prayer and giving. Now, why would he call those three things out? There's a lot of other religious things we could do besides those three things. Why only those three things? Because all of those things come with a similar instruction. Jesus says, don't do those things so other people see you. Do them quietly. Do them secretively in such a way that only God can see them. Now, we can obviously see the genius in that. If we do those acts of righteousness in a private way where only God can see them, then we can know for sure we're doing them for God and no one else. But the moment you start to brag about these things, the moment you start to make a show of it, the moment you try to get the approval of others, well, now you've convoluted the whole thing. Now we're back in the same equation. We got our eyes on the wrong thing. Therefore, anxiety goes up, heartbreak goes up, chaos goes up. So Jesus says, I want you to entertain these things. And so since November 1st, we have been in a season that we are calling 21 days of fasting and prayer here at Grace Valley Church. Some of you are participating in the 21 day fast. And I know for some of you, that sounds like, whoa, I'm not doing that. I've had people come to me and basically say, uh, great sermon, but I'm not fasting. Like just ice cold to me. I'm like, wow, that was, that's like really bold. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not twisting your arm. I'm not trying to make you do it. It's an invitation. You don't have to do this. It's, but it is one of the ways Jesus out outlines as a way to seek him first. Because for those of you who are doing this, you realize when you start to fast, you start to eliminate some things from your life that you normally depend on. There's a gap there. And in that gap, you start getting, you start looking. I have a really good friend who goes to this church. He's been fasting. I mean, like not eating food for a, a period of every single day. He's not been eating food. I looked over last Sunday. He's sitting in his chair right next to him in the chair was a donut. A donut, chocolate covered donut, beautiful looking donut. I said, what's that? He goes, 11 a.m. I'm eating. <laughs> I thought, that's great. He's committed to his fast, but you better know 
At 11 a.m., he's going to eat because we feel it, don't we? When we start to separate from these things that we depend on, we feel that gap. And that's exactly the point because if we can take that gap and fill it with God, fill it with our focus on him, if we can come to God with that gap and say, I have been missing something, God, and the reason reason I recognize what I need from you, God, is because I've been covering it up with other things. I've been hiding my need for you, God, underneath my eating, my drinking, my watching too much TV, my too much focus on social media. God, I have been hiding my need for you. And when we finally expose that, open open that up and expose that, we go, God, will you fill this gap instead of food? Will you fill this gap instead of me entertaining myself to death? And this is how something like fasting helps us seek him first. So last week we talked about prayer. And this week we are going to talk about the most resisted teaching in the Bible. Giving. Now I'm going to just clear the air on this. You don't have to give. Yes, you heard it here first. This is not a twist your arm into giving. Although I will talk about ways you can give. I have talked about giving in this church from the platform one time when we were preparing to buy this building. And I'm grateful we have a church that faithfully gives. And so I haven't talked about it because it's this weird issue in a church because everybody wants to resist this. Everybody wants to make me the villain when it comes to giving. It's because the pastor's always preaching about money. So I've avoided it for that reason. But it's in the scriptures, and not only is it in the scriptures, which I'm obligated to teach, it is in the scriptures surrounding this issue of seeking him first, which is absolutely what you need. It's absolutely what I need. So what does Jesus say about it? Jump down to verse 19. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin will destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you jump down to 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other, or, they will, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Yeah, this one starts to get all over us, doesn't it? Because we all have this similar relationship with money. We all want more of it. We all want more of it. There's this delusion that we live that if I just get a little more, or maybe your circumstances, maybe your mind tells you, if I get a lot more, then I will finally be satisfied. I will finally be at peace. I'll finally be at rest. You guys realize that nobody with more money than you feels that way. Nobody who has earned another 100,000, another 500,000, another million, another 10 million, nobody ever trips over that 10 million mark and finds peace. You realize that? And I know you're thinking, yeah, but maybe I'm the exception. (laughs) Maybe I'm the one who will discover peace with all that money. No, it doesn't work that way. We believe this idea. And then we live in the tension of this whole thing that we all want nice things to enjoy and there's nothing in the Bible that precludes us from having nice things. That's right. We can have nice things. We all want nice things. We all want to provide for the needs of our family and take care of the people that we love. We all want to do that. 
And I think this is true. Most of us also want to be generous. We want to help people. And therein lies the difficulty. There's the tug of war. And I'm telling you guys, nothing in your life contends with God more than money. And so now we live in this tug of war. Have you ever played tug of war? If you've ever played tug of war, you know that oftentimes it's just a stalemate. We're just, just this tension constantly exists. And I will guarantee you, maybe more in this church body than a lot of church bodies, because we live in an affluent community and most of you are doing quite well in life. Because of that, this tug of war is greater in this room than in most rooms. And so Jesus says, let's settle this. So let's break these things down. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So Jesus calls out the reality that we all wish wasn't true. That our material things, our material wealth is temporary. That just bothers me. Because we all believe that if we can just have enough, that we can keep it that it will solve all of life's problems, that we will get away with enjoying everything we want. But things fall apart. Money is slippery. It gets right out of our hands, doesn't it? Which is why some of you have been glued to the TV, politics and world events and how it's affecting the markets and what it's doing to your portfolio. And it's having you stressed out. Why? Because you've put so much hope in money that you don't know what to do. And I'll tell you that feeling that you have when the market starts to tank or your income feels threatened in some way, that feeling, and I don't mean this because I feel it too, this is not picking on you. That feeling is the feeling of our, our little G gods failing us. That's the feeling. Is they're not, they're not being helpful. And so Jesus says this, he says, Instead of storing up treasures on earth where moth and things destroy, you want to aim for heaven. He says, so I love this line in verse 19. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He literally just says, don't do it. I was in a basketball game yesterday, not in me playing, but I'm the dad of a son who plays basketball. And last year I was my son's basketball coach. I was the, myself and my friend, we were the coaches of the Fifth grade, Collierville Rec League, Celtics. We were a force to be reckoned with last year. And so I had this group of fifth grade boys. We were coaching. And some of these boys, as they moved into the sixth grade, they made the sixth grade school team. I'm not the coach of the sixth grade school team. But they're out there on the court. I've been super energized about watching my son play. I love watching him play. I love all my kids and all the activities they do. I love watching them do their thing. But this one's been a little different because I was coaching him last year. I was coaching some of these exact boys last year. Now they're on the floor and I'm in the stands. My wife, my in-laws, my mom, my children all sit on the back row up next to the back, back there. I sit on the front row because I feel like my place is on the sidelines. I should be down there on the floor. And I feel like being on the front row of the stands gives me a better vantage point of what's going on so that I can at times help the coach. 
I'm actually pretty helpful to the referees as well. Because sometimes the refs don't see everything I can see. That's right. Thank you. Amen. And so I'm a pretty helpful person in that. So I've learned that maybe my wife is getting a little healthy distance. So is the rest of my family, people that know me. But I've, I've learned. I'm down the front row. I have... I have this heart for my son and this team, and I want us to see him do well and all that, so I'm just going to be helpful down on the front row. I, re- I found out that I got some other dads that feel the same way. So we're all down there. We're chit-chatting a little bit, but we're, we're keeping stats on our phone, and we're watching the game, and all this is, you know, and I know I, can, I have a loud voice, and sometimes that could be misinterpreted and things like that. I don't yell a whole lot, but I yell some, mostly at my son who's playing. I want him to encourage him, do well, do good. So the game was over yesterday. Brr, buzzer went off. They lost miserably. So right when the buzzer went off, I stood up, walked right across the court because that's where the refs were going to go take a seat. <laughs> and I felt like I needed to ask a question. I had a question on my heart. <laughs> and I wanted to ask them a question. And so I went over there, and truly, I, I thought, in, in all honesty, I thought they did a pretty good job calling the game. I told them that after the game. I said, that I, think the, I think the refs did a good job calling the game. And I went over there to ask a simple question. Honestly, it was truly this. I just wanted to ask how they were managing the clock. Sometimes it seemed like they were stopping the clock when they should, and sometimes it seemed like they were running the clock when they shouldn't. And I was just wondering how they were managing the clock. So I went to ask a simple question. They gave me an answer. I turned and walked away. Looked at my phone, and I realized that my wife had sent me a text. I think it's cute when my wife sends me texts when we're like right in the same room. And I thought, she sent me a little text. And her text said, don't say anything, was what her text said. And so I said, did you send me this? And she said, yes, I saw you walking over there. And what was she trying to do? She was trying to stop me from doing something really stupid. That's what she was trying to do. And so she said, don't say anything because you're feeling it just like she felt it. But Andy, Andy, don't go over there. Don't do that. You're, you're the pastor. You cannot go over there. Like, you're, like everybody feels that with me in a room. And she's texting me. Now, it was a simple question, and I got a simple answer, and I walked away. I still don't think they managed the clock right. But that being said, wouldn't have changed the outcome. All that being said... I did not yesterday, just so you know, make a fool of myself. I don't think. Not totally. And, but she sent this text and I, it reminded me, I thought, you know what? That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 19. Don't do it. Don't store up treasures on earth. Don't do it. It will backfire on you. I know you think you're right. I know you think you're making the right call. But don't do it. You are setting yourself up for disaster. If you focus only on storing up treasures on earth, then you're going to be sorely disappointed because thieves break in and steal. Stuff that we own falls apart. Moths and vermin destroy it. We just can't hold on to the stuff on earth. So what happens if we get our eyes on the wrong stuff? If we put too much emphasis on material things, what happens? Anxiety goes up. Heartbreak goes up. Chaos goes up. And Jesus is giving us a clear warning. And so he says in verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where uh, thieves do not break in and steal. He gives us a better plan. Instead of investing in this world, 
we have the opportunity to invest in heaven. We literally have the opportunity to make an eternal investment with our material wealth. We actually get that opportunity. We get to make an eternal investment with our material temporary wealth. There is not a single investment in your portfolio that promises you that. Where no one can steal it, where market forces don't touch it, where no possible way it will fall apart and break down, no way you will ever lose it. When we make an investment in the things of heaven, in the things of God, and we invest in his kingdom, you can make an eternal investment with your material wealth. He goes on to say in verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which makes complete sense. Our hearts are connected to our treasure. That's why heartache lives at the center of this whole issue. Because we want so badly for our money to provide something for us or our material wealth, but we place too much emphasis on it. And when it starts to look shaky, when something doesn't look like it's going to hold up, there goes our anxiety, there goes our heartbreak, and there goes our chaos every single time. And Jesus is trying to protect us from that. He says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You know what? One of the things I've learned, I do, you guys know, I do a lot of marriage counseling. Do you know what the number one reason why people say they're getting a divorce? Money. It's the number one reason. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you treat money like it's the most important thing, then that means, stands to reason that you at times may put money or material things above even your spouse. So then you will be more loyal. Your heart will be there instead of with your spouse. Which is why when you have an argument, an argument with your spouse about money, that's why it feels like almost like betrayal because it is betrayal. Can I say that? I think I just said it because you are revealing that what's more important than your spouse, this person that you've committed to love is your material things. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And I can't, I don't know that I've seen anything as devastating as divorce on a group of people. Some of you've been there. I don't mean to put salt in a wound. But when you see what oftentimes money can do to a family, it drives two people apart. It fractures the relationship with children, it is awful. It's anxiety, heartbreak, and chaos all over the place. So Jesus is warning us against this. And he goes on in verse 24 and he says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And it sounds harsh, but it's true. Our money is the number one contender for God in our lives. This is the tug of war between God and money in our hearts. So here's my question for you. Who is winning? Who's winning in your life? Is it God or money? And I think we need to face that question more often than we ask it. Who is winning in your life, God or money? Timing's probably good on this conversation as we enter into a holiday season where we often spend a whole lot of money on things that wind up getting lost in the paper and wrapping and boxes on the floor. Things that don't really matter. And trust me, 
I have bought more junk that gets either thrown away in a week or two for Christmas than you can imagine. We might need to pump the brakes a little bit and not make Christmas so much about stuff. And I'm preaching to me, guys. I'm preaching to me. Because my kids are just like yours. They bring me their ideas. They want to get on Amazon and put stuff in a wish list. I want to break the phone, man. But you know as well as I do, what matters most is not the stuff they get. It's the people in the room. It's the relationships we have. It's knowing that we can be happy together as a family without all this stuff. We all know that. But we act like we can't. So, as you're chewing on that question, who's winning, God or money, if you have a, if you have a Bible, flip over to Mark chapter 12. Jesus is going to show us a, a key component to how we answer this question in our lives. Mark 12, starting in verse 41, Jesus tells a little story. He's sitting down with his disciples, and it says in verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, the poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So Jesus is at the temple and he's with his disciples and he sees the opportunity for an object lesson. Here he's playing the rabbi perfectly. He's going to teach his disciples a key life lesson. And so they arrange themselves. You know, kind of like we have the black boxes in the back. He, they kind of arrange themselves. They got a good vantage point on where people are dropping their offering. They had in, in the temple area, they would have essentially offering boxes or receptacles, places where the offering would be placed which is actually a really good practice. That's one of the reasons why we have boxes in the back. It allows for a little bit more anonymity in giving. If you grew up in a church that passed a plate, I did. You can't help but look in it and be like, who put that check in there? And like, ooh, that's a wad of cash. Have you ever seen somebody try to make change in the offering plate? Like, I've seen that. I've been in church long enough. People are like, oh, can you break a 20? Hang on. And like, come on. So Jesus is sitting with his disciples and they look over and, he's, and they notice some things. So Jesus identifies a few things that we need to notice also. He says, many rich people threw in large amounts. This is exactly what we would expect, right? We expect rich people to give more. Do you ever find yourself like judging rich people? And rich people are always defined as people who have more money than you do. If you live in Cargerville or anywhere near here, you're rich, by the way. By global standards, you're rich. But we always think rich people should give more. And that's what they saw. They saw these people coming in, throwing lots of money in the thing, and they would make a show about it. That was kind of the deal with these religious leaders and these people, is they wanted to make things a show. When they prayed, they stood on the corners and prayed. When they fasted, oh, they looked so sad, and they were making sure everyone knew they were fasting. And here, they want to, like, slam dunk their offering in the offering box. They want everybody to notice. Why? Because it makes them look more righteous. So we expect kind of what they're seeing, rich people throwing in large amounts. But the object lesson continues, verse 42, it says, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, only worth a few cents. 
Now, this, these coins were referred to as, uh, in, in that day, they were called leptons. They were worth about 164th of a Roman denarius, which was about a day's wage. I've done a little math for you today. The average household income in Collierville is $117,327,000, or a little more than $450 per day. Work, work day, not every single day, but working days, 260 working days in a year. If we use the model of the widow, she gave 164th of a day's wage. In our community, that would be slightly more than $7. Okay. I would imagine for most of us in this room, $7 might as well be two cents. We can throw $7 in an offering box without a problem. That's what this little woman did. She puts her little two cents, her little two coins in the, in the offering box. And then Jesus calling his disciples to him, which they were already seated. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's like, look at me, guys, calling for their attention. And I think in this moment, we should hear the same thing. Jesus is calling for your attention on this point. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Wait, Jesus, are you watching what is going on? Either you stink at accounting or you're talking about something different. We all saw the amounts, Jesus. They're dumping in bags of money. They're making a big deal about this. She's just putting her little coins in there and walking away. Jesus, we know who gave more. Jesus said, no, she gave more. And then he, he ups it. Jesus does this sometimes. He will say something that sounds absurd to us so that we can't overlook the point. He says, they gave more than all of them. Verse 44, he explains his point. He says, they all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus is making a point about proportional giving. Proportional giving. Giving that costs me something versus something that doesn't. Because it is this costly sacrifice that focuses our attention on God. It helps us really come to grips with who's the boss of our lives. And so Jesus introduced a paradigm shift on how giving will forever be evaluated. God is moved by more than your heart, than your hand. And he's moved more by your attitude than your amount. Now I want you to write three things down. This woman that we would probably urge her. I mean, some of the financial planners in the room would be like, don't, don't give, don't give the two cents. Just let's work with that. Let's put that into a, you know, a diversified portfolio. Let's see if we can turn two into four. We'll help you out widow woman. But Jesus looks at things a little differently. The only way she would have been able to do this would be if she had faith. Number one, faith in God's provision, faith in God's provision. She was willing to trust God to take care of her needs more than she was going to take care of her own needs. She was trusting it to God. She gave all she had. She was trusting God with it. She believed in something she couldn't see. That's one of the dangers of material wealth is we start to trust in the one thing we can see. Our money, our wealth, our stuff. She trusted in something she couldn't see. God's provision. She had faith. Number two, 
she wanted to participate in God's work. She gave to the temple, which was a tangible way to give to the work of God. The modern example of that would be giving to the, to the local church. That's how we invest in the things of God. At least it's one expression of it, that we can invest in the tangible work of God on earth. I told you, I was going to tell you, this is going to turn into me saying you need to give to the church, but not in the way you might think. Because she's giving, saying, God, I want to make an eternal investment with my temporary wealth, my material wealth. And so she was participating in God's work through her financial investment. There's an old, there's actually an old song. I don't even remember where I first heard it. For a season of my life, I was really into old gospel music. And uh, there's this old song called Little Is Much When God Is In It. It's a good line. Because God doesn't really need us in the first place. And this is what I want you to hear. And I hope, I hope when I say this next statement, that it frees you from some of the damaging things maybe pastors have said regarding giving before. God does not need your money. I'm going to say it again so we can all hear it. God does not need your money. God is looking for faith and trust. He's looking for hearts that want to participate in his work and his kingdom work. And this thing, this third thing I want you to write down is this widow demonstrated a commitment of putting God first in all, in our modern mind, we would say, Oh, you know, she needs to, she should buy bread with that. She should go and try to, she should try to take care of her needs. She entrusted that to God. So she has a commitment of putting God first, no matter what. And we know because Jesus is talking here, he, we know God's opinion of her giving. He elevated it. It's more that her giving her heart, her faith, her commitment was greater in God's eyes than all the other people who dumped all their wealth in the box because God doesn't need anybody's money. I hope you realize this by now. God owns everything anyway. If he wants it from you, he can just come and take it anytime he wants. It's one of the reasons why we take, this is really where people that came long before us in our country said, we need to set aside a day as a holiday to thank God, which is why we should do that on Thursday. Thanksgiving It's not just a family gathering. It's not just a lot of great food. It is a time that we stop and we look at everybody we love around us and go, this is because of God. He did this. He gave us this house. He gave us this food. He provided everything for us. We did nothing to earn it. He gave it to us as an act of blessing and grace in our lives. I hope that you will do that. I hope someone in your family is bold enough to stand up in front of everybody else and go, wait a minute, we will not eat all this goodness. We will not just turn on the football game and go into a turkey coma without thanking God for it. So I hope somebody in your family will do that. And if it's nobody you know, then make it you. So Jesus tells us this is what God sees in giving. Our giving to God is always proportional to our trust in God. And that's probably the convicting point to me. Our giving to God is always proportional to our trust. The reason why I want to I hold on to my stuff is because I really don't trust him with it. 
I don't trust him with it. But when I do trust him, you know what? God can take care of it. God will do great things to it. Little is much when God is in it. He doesn't need anything from you. But what does he want? He wants your heart. He wants your faith. He wants you to be committed. He wants you to trust him. We've been in this fast now for almost, well, it's been 19 days. This is day 19. Two more days. Um, I, don't, I don't say any of this to, to make this a show. Um, but as, you, as your pastor, you do need to know some things. I am fasting during this 21-day season. And I was sharing with some friends this week that this weird thing happened to me during these 21 days. Every single day, there's a particular time I start to uh, I, I eat again after not eating for a while. In the first week or so, I couldn't wait until the clock turned that time, kind of like my buddy and his donut. I just wanted to eat because I felt like I was just being deprived and now I need to eat. But something happened in that second week. I would, I'd still eat right on time, but it didn't do for me what I thought it would do for me. It didn't pay me like I thought it should pay me because there was a part of me that thought, okay, maybe I'm, I'm deprived. And then if I just eat that, it'll be like a payback. Oh, that'll feel great. What was actually happening is in my heart. Truly guys, I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to give you pastoral spin on something. The reality is I feel closer to God. I truly feel like I am hearing from God. And what I maybe used to look forward to food doing for me, I don't need food to do that for me anymore. Doesn't mean I don't love to eat. I do love food and I'm planning on a big Thanksgiving, but I don't need food to do this for me. And so there's a strange thing I'm feeling now. I really hope this thing I found with God in these 21 days doesn't go away on day 22. I really hope that's not the case. I don't want to say, okay, that was great. Let's move on. Let's get back to trusting in all these other things. I want to depend on him more than I would normally. That's the nature of this. See, when we come to God and we say, God, we're going to We're going to do your path. We're going to trust that God, when you called us to fast and pray and give, you had more in mind than us just going through the motions of some spiritual disciplines. God, you had in mind that this would cause us to seek you first and that we would be rewarded in that journey, that we would, we would find you in a greater place in our lives, that the stuff that makes us anxious would come down. The heartbreak would go down. The chaos would go down because we are seeking you first and we are not just seeking you, but we are finding you. So I want to say this about fasting. We conclude this fast officially on, on at the end of the day, Tuesday. I still want to invite you to fast. I want to invite you to fast. At any level, this has been this has been choose your own adventure fasting. You can fast any way you want. But if you want to, if you would even be willing to entertain it, that you would fast. And so I'm going to give you one option. On Monday and Tuesday, 
Pick one of those days or both of those days that you would fast from 6.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. for two days. Why would we do that right before Thanksgiving? Because you want to make sure you know that food is not more important than God. It's the same reason I'm going to invite you to give so that you know that money's not more important than God. So we're kicking off a, our Christmas mission opportunity today. We partner with a church in downtown Memphis. They are in one of the most difficult areas of our city doing ministry. They're called Community Bible Church, Memphis. Pastor Jim Rowland. We have a close relationship with this church and we believe in their mission, but they are under-resourced as a church and as a church body, the individual families are under-resourced in life. So we've partnered with them and we, are, we do a, a missions emphasis every Christmas called Grace Delivered. And so you have the opportunity today when you walk out of here to grab a cardboard box and you, and there's a list on this box and you can fill it with all the stuff on the list for the man, the woman, or the child that you're, you're going to be sponsoring for this Christmas. And I want to urge you not to just fill up the list, but I urge you to make it outrageous. If it fits in the box, put it in the box. If you need another box, take one of the Amazon deliveries that come to your house, fill that box and bring it along. But here's why, because we need practical ways to say, God, you are first and I need to say no to me and yes to something else. I will not bring God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. So you have the opportunity to stop by, pick up your box, shop and deliver it between now and December 17th back to the church. And then we're going to take all them boxes down there and we're going to bless this fa these families at this church. I did a funeral down there a couple months ago and this dear woman that we gave boxes to two years ago, she came, I didn't recognize her. She recognized me. She came and gave me this huge hug and she said, your church gave me the best Christmas of my life. I was like, I don't even know how to respond to that. So I want you to take that opportunity and listen, I'm going to tell you, we're going to run out of boxes today. So you're going to have to pair up. You're going to have to group up and say, let's do this together somehow to get a touch on this opportunity. And if you just miss boxes completely, go buy gift cards and we'll just give them gift cards. It'll be like a gift card party. Like, oh, you get one. Like Oprah, you get one. You get one. It'll be fun. But we don't do this for us. We do this for others. And we do this because we are proving to ourselves because God already knows we're going to prove it to ourselves that God is more important than our money. I'm also going to ask you to consider tithing to this church. And I'm not even about to get into all the debates about tithing. Everybody wants to argue the point. I already told you, you don't have to do it. It's like fasting. You don't have to do it. You're free not to tithe. You're free not to fast. You're free not to pray. You're free not to give. All that. I'm not asking you to give because this church has, you know, incredible needs and oh no, if, we, if you don't, then we won't. I'm not doing any of that. This church gives wonderfully, but you need to tithe for you to prove to yourself that your money's not in control of you. God is. And if you know, nobody in this room, if everybody doesn't know what tithing is, it means taking 10% of your annual income and giving it to the work of God. And I'm... I can, I'm about to come out of my skin to teach a message next Sunday. 
that I think God gave me during this fast to share with you. And uh, I get the privilege of sharing with you our missions commitment for next year. So I'm, I'm just teasing you with that. I hope you come back. And if you're not decided on tithing between now and then, I hope that next week will show you how you can participate in the work of God through this church. I can't wait. I almost put it in this message because I couldn't wait, but I had to get through this. So I want to lead us in a time of response. The, The response is really less about maybe what we do in here. It's really what we do out there that you'd be generous and that you would get involved in grace delivered, that you would get involved in saying, God, I want to put you first. But some of you in this room right now need to do business with God. Because when I said there's a tug of war between God and money in your life, you might need to settle that today. You might need to settle it. You might need to come up here and pray. And then we're going to have people down front. And let me just tell you, the majority of us in this room need to settle it today. And if you hadn't settled it in a while, you need to resettle it because this one stands up and gets back in the way all the time. So if it's been a while since you've said to God, you are more important than my money and my wealth and my stuff, I want to invite you to come down and surrender that again to him. If you're more concerned about dollars and career and investments, all those things, than you are about God and his work. I want you to come down and pray and say, God, I'm putting this at your feet. I am trusting you with it. And if you want to talk to someone to pray with you, we'll have people down here. All you have to say is money's winning and I don't want it to. That's all you have to say. Money's winning and I don't, I don't want it to. And we'll pray. No one needs to know your name. Nobody needs to know any details. We're just going to pray. And we're going to sing this song together in worship. So Father, we come to you now. And God, for those in this room that need to surrender the place money has in their life, God, I pray that you will bring conviction unlike they have felt in a long time. God, I pray that we would not be people that care so much about this world that we forget about you. God, show us how how we can invest in eternity with the blessings that you've poured into our lives. God, we wanna make a difference in this world and we wanna put you first. So God, I pray that you would move on us right now for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.